I will accept the nomination for president if it is tendered to me, and I will adhere to this decision until the convention has expressed its preference. The 1912 presidential election was only a few months away, and Theodore Roosevelt had thrown his hat into the ring despite his 1904 election night pledge never to run for president again. No one was happy about it. Edith Roosevelt saw her plans for a peaceful retirement at Oyster Bay, with visits from their growing family and a husband finally given back to her after a lifetime of public service, disappear. Elihu Root, Teddy's most trusted and stable advisor, told the press that the Colonel and I have long since agreed to disagree on a number of points. President William Howard Taft, already facing what looked like certain defeat by Woodrow Wilson, now had another challenger to contend with. Wilson, comfortable in his prospects to defeat President Taft in the general election, was far less confident about taking on Theodore Roosevelt. It now looks as if Roosevelt, not Taft, would get, or rather take, the Republican nomination, he said. That would make a campaign worthwhile. Teddy himself knew that the nomination fight would be brutal and its outcome uncertain. He believed his only hope of winning was to reach the popular vote through direct primaries in the states that held them. Only 14 states held popular vote primaries in 1912. Nearly everyone he spoke to tried to talk him out of running. Robert Grant and William Allen White, two longtime confidants, spent five hours at Grant's home in Boston trying to get Teddy to reconsider. But the situation is complex, I suppose, Grant asked. You would like to be president. You are right. It is complex, Teddy replied. I like power, but I care nothing to be president as president. I am interested in these ideas of mine, and I want to carry them through, and feel that I am the one to carry them through. As the gathering broke up, Grant asked Teddy about his cool treatment of Taft. It was through me and my friends that he became president, Teddy snapped. As the year went on, Teddy found himself ostracized by establishment Republicans and adored by the public. After a lifetime of party regularity, he found himself both free and shunned, loved and despised. I am alone, Teddy told a friend. You can't imagine how lonely it is for a man to be rejected by his own kind. By March of 1912, the first whispers of splitting the Republican Party made the rounds. The progressive wing of the party, exiled during the Taft administration, saw their movement faced with extinction if Taft was nominated and defeated in 1912. Staying in the Republican Party spelled certain doom for progressives. Forming their own party would be a lifeboat, but with Theodore Roosevelt to lead them, it might just be a battleship. The energy of the Roosevelt campaign was tremendous. By early March, much of the organization he needed was established and well-financed. Its headquarters was in a New York skyscraper. There was one window of the Roosevelt for president offices from which the candidate could look down and see the house where he had been born. But on March 26th, New York Republicans voted in their primary. The state went overwhelmingly for Taft by a two-to-one margin. Teddy had now convincingly lost the first two Republican primaries. Two days later, he issued an ultimatum to the Republican Party. If he lost the nomination, he would run as an independent. Teddy had made a habit of making threats when nominating conventions came around. In 1900, he threatened to run for governor of New York again if he wasn't nominated for vice president. In 1908, he threatened to leave the country in the hands of a fellow who didn't want the job. And in 1912, he promised to split the party down the middle, which almost guaranteed their defeat if he didn't get the nomination. The thing was, his threats had always carried weight. He had been able to speak softly because he carried the big stick. 
Theodore Roosevelt was phenomenally popular compared to the long-winded, lazy, overweight Taft, but the nomination wasn't up to the people. This was the one political lesson Teddy could never seem to grasp. Most delegates to the convention would be selected by party machinery, not voters. The Republicans for Roosevelt activists fanning out across the country to drum up support for Teddy were passionate, idealistic amateurs. The old guard working for Taft were clear-eyed realists who offered federal jobs and government perks to those who promised to remain loyal to the president. Roosevelt supporters resorted to less-than-savory tactics that Teddy either tolerated or pretended not to know about. Forged signatures on nominating petitions, baseball bats wielded to discipline delegates in Missouri, and a primary win in Oklahoma, coerced by a progressive enthusiast standing behind the chairman with a loaded revolver. His candidacy surged, but the totals in the primaries where he expected overwhelming victory, like his former stomping grounds in the North Dakota Badlands, went instead for Robert La Follette. A childhood friend, Fanny Parsons, who had predicted Theodore would one day be president when they were just teenagers, went to visit him. She said, I realized he was starting out on a strange, untraveled road, the end of which he could not see. The leader for the time being, whoever he may be, is but an instrument to be used until broken and then to be cast aside. And if he is worth his salt, he will care no more when he is broken than a soldier cares when he is sent where his life is forfeit in order that victory may be won. We, here in America, hold in our hands the hope of the world, the fate of the coming years, and shame and disgrace will be ours if in our eyes the light of high resolve is dimmed, if we trail into dust the golden hopes of men. This speech, given the night after Teddy's loss in a North Dakota primary, brought the whole crowd, friend and foe alike, to its feet. Theodore Roosevelt reminded the nation in one speech that he was still presidential and that he would never quit. He won a smashing victory in the Illinois primary on April 9th, winning 2-1 to one over Taft and picking up 56 delegates. The gossips in Washington, D.C., who in their minds had already renominated Taft, were stunned. Henry Adams said, no one can explain it, and I think no one expected it, which was pretty much the story of Teddy's political life. He went on to win primaries in Nebraska and Oregon. Taft won in New Hampshire, which Teddy had written off anyway. The next big contest was Massachusetts, which was a toss-up. The importance of the primary was such that Taft went to Boston in person to campaign. In a speech at the Boston Arena, Taft went after his old friend. I am in this fight to perform a great public duty, the duty of keeping Theodore Roosevelt out of the White House, he told a reporter before the speech. After a long lawyerly defense of his administration and the tradition-defying notion of anyone serving a third presidential term, Taft said of Teddy, he is convinced that he is the only one to do the job, as he terms it, and for this he is prepared to sacrifice his personal comfort. There is not the slightest reason why, if he secures a third term, and the limitation of the Washington, Jefferson, and Jackson tradition is broken down, he should not have as many terms as his natural life will permit. If he is necessary now to the government, why not later? After returning to his train, Taft put his head in his hands and cried. Taft barely won the Massachusetts primary, but the contest was so close that he and Teddy ended up with the same number of delegates from the Bay State. Teddy won Maryland, Kansas, and Minnesota. On May 14th, he swept California. Taft wrote his brother, If I am defeated, I hope that somebody, sometime, will recognize the agony of spirit that I have undergone. The Ohio primary was Taft's last stand, his home state and the birthplace of a number of presidents. 
The rhetoric got more personal as the candidates crisscrossed the state, Teddy covering 18,000 miles. Taft called Teddy a dangerous egotist. Teddy reported that Taft was a puzzlewit and a fathead, comparing the president's brain to a guinea pig's. Mr. Taft, Teddy said at Marion, never discovered that I was dangerous to the people until I discovered he was useless to the people. The Democrats watched this, dare I say, train wreck with a bounding joy, collecting material to use against whichever one of them they had to face in the fall, rejoicing in a report that one night Roosevelt and Taft had, after a fashion, slept together with their Pullmans parked side by side in the Steubenville, Ohio depot. As Taft was heading to Cincinnati to vote, he heard that one of his own supporters had asked Teddy if he would support a compromised candidate like Charles Evans Hughes if neither he nor Taft could win the nomination decisively. I will name the compromise candidate, Teddy replied. He will be me. The Ohio primary was an overwhelming victory for Roosevelt, who took 34 of the 48 delegates. Teddy went on to take New Jersey and South Dakota. A new phrase was coined, tornadoes, spelled capital T-R-NATOs. Woodrow Wilson, astounded by Teddy's successes, said God save us of another four years of him now. It is a marvel that so many of those who had seen Teddy triumph against overwhelming odds continued to underestimate him. By June 18th, the opening day of the Republican convention, Teddy had the most popular votes, winning most of the states that had direct popular primaries. He had 1.2 million of those votes, compared to 865,000 for Taft and 327,000 for La Follette. Taft was ahead in party delegates that were determined without primaries, but Roosevelt's supporters were prepared to challenge them, pointing to their candidate as the clear favorite of the people, and therefore the best chance of victory in the fall. Though the 1900 convention had been about who was most likely to win, the country had moved on in 11 short years. Now it was about the status quo and a return to order. Newspapers had started to endorse Wilson, if for no other reason than to present him as a mature alternative to all that nasty Republican infighting. The Republicans' first step in achieving decorum was nominating Elihu Root to be the chairman of the convention. Although he and Teddy were old friends, Root was all establishment, what Teddy called seven-eighths lawyer and one-eighth man. He had to oppose his old friend because Root's chairmanship decidedly leaned things in Taft's favor. Little more than a thousand delegates would vote on a nominee, and only 540 of those were needed to win. In this smoke-filled room, petty grudges and promises of future favors ruled the day. Elihurut was elected chairman. Many of Teddy's delegates were disqualified. There was bias against him as the challenger to the sitting president, and it soon became clear he stood no chance of winning the nomination. He decided, as always, that the best thing he could do was go to the convention in person, something that was definitely not done in those days. He and a number of Roosevelts, including a reluctant Edith, left Sagamore Hill for Chicago. Teddy was treated like a celebrity, mobbed at his hotel with crowds in the streets below his window causing all manner of ruckus into the wee hours of the morning. The former president addressed the convention railing against the robbery of his delegates that the committee had disqualified. He set the stage for a bolt, the defection from the Republican Party to a new one. It is our duty to the people of this country to insist that no action of the convention, which is based on the votes of those fraudulently seated delegates, binds the Republican Party or imposes any obligation upon any Republican. 
he finished a rousing cheers and thunderous applause. The victory shall be ours, and it shall be won as we have already won so many victories, by clean and honest fighting for the loftiest of causes. We fight in honorable fashion for the good of mankind, fearless for the future, unheeding of our individual fates, with unflinching hearts and undimmed eyes. We stand in Armageddon, and we battle for the Lord. Teddy had never before used such evangelical language or dared to present himself as a holy warrior. Edith Roosevelt, beaming with pride, said, I am never surprised at anything Theodore may say. A flyer was circulated in response to his fanatical followers in his new holy quest. At three o'clock Thursday afternoon, it read, Theodore Roosevelt will walk on the waters of Lake Michigan. The 1912 convention was not the Republican Party's finest hour. Tensions were high as one of the party's most beloved and successful leaders was pitted against a certain loser come the fall. Roosevelt's fired-up supporters tried to drown out the proceedings with cheers of Roosevelt, Roosevelt. The speaker at the lectern said wearily, You need not hesitate to cheer Roosevelt in my presence. I cheered him for seven years, and I am just trying to take a day off. That is all. Screaming matches and fist fights became distressingly normal, each disturbance another harbinger of defeat in November. By the end of the roll call, Taft had 567 delegates to Teddy's 507. Ultimately, he was nominated with 561 votes. Roosevelt supporters bolted to Orchestra Hall, where Teddy gave a speech that were the birth pains of a new party, the Progressive or Bull Moose Party. President Taft's supporters were mute in their victory. The Republican split essentially guaranteed the Democrats would take the White House in the fall. The damage that had been done was expressed best by the sadness of Elihu Root, now an outcast from the man he had served so well. I care more for one button on Theodore Roosevelt's waistcoat than for Taft's whole body, he said, after making his last futile effort at party unity. All that was left to do now was count the votes in November. If you've enjoyed this episode, please consider giving us a good rating on Apple Podcasts and whatever platform you listen on, as well as supporting the show on our Patreon page. There's lots of fun bonus content over there, like how to talk to your pets about history, early access to new episodes, and some incidents where fans of the show take me to task about train wrecks that I haven't talked about, and some that I have. It's also a great way to keep the show going. $3 a month or so goes a long way toward keeping the train wrecks on the tracks, and your support means a lot. Go to patreon.com forward slash histories train wrecks, and thank you so much. If you have your own ideas about partisan nominating conventions, or would really like to have seen Teddy walk on water, you can Twitter to add histories train. You can Instagram, whatever that is, to histories train wrecks. If there's a historical train wreck you'd love to see on the tracks, join the histories train wrecks Facebook group. And as always, tell every history nerd you know about us. We definitely need to stick together. On our next episode, we put off the vote counting for a while to find out what was so hard about naming Hoover Dam. Stay tuned for What's in a Damn Name. Hello, great minds. Mr. DGMH here, but wait, what the hell is DGMH? 
DGMH, or Drinks with Great Minds in History, is a weekly podcast that covers one of history's greatest minds each month. While we enjoy review and rate themed cocktails, liquors, and beers on the scale of greatness. As greats like Alexander Hamilton square off against George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, and more, DGMH is the perfect cocktail of history, sarcasm, and alcohol, with a twist of psych and a bunch of shots along the way. So grab yourself a drink with some great minds in history. Cheers! Cheers!